Today we're in chapter 16. You know, the preachers, you're around preachers, sometimes you'll hear them say about a particular Bible passage, that'll preach. I've never heard anyone say that about Romans chapter 16. At, at first blush, it looks to be about as interesting as a page from a 50-year-old phone book from a town you've never been in. And yet the inspired apostle had a reason for attaching it as a postscript to his letter. So we are going to learn something from it, and it is going to be interesting. That's an order. <laughs> really, I expect this text will be more than interesting. I expect the Lord will have something to say to us as a church and as individuals as we read it. The old preacher Vance Havner used to say, I've never heard a sermon from which I didn't get something. But I've had some mighty close calls. <laughs> I don't think we'll even have a close call in Romans 16. Just on a natural level, there are some fascinating things and surprising things in this chapter. But we're not operating on just a natural level. So let's ask the Father to reveal truth that we can use to serve the Son and the Spirit can use to transform us. Let's read Romans 16. I'll read the first 16 verses. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Great Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. In Greek, that's something like, it's hard to put exactly, but they stuck out their necks for me. But So in Rome, when you stick out your neck, it's usually on a chopping block. That's what Paul's saying. They risked everything for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apellus, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, probably twins, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with him. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So in this final chapter, Paul greets 26 people, 24 by name, and then he'll send greetings from others as well. Greets 26 people, two families, and at least three, possibly as many as five, house churches. Since he's never been in Rome, it's surprising that he knows so many people there. It's also surprising that he mentions them by name. Paul normally does not do that. The closest parallel we have is in Colossians, where he sends personal greetings to two people, and one of them, he's reminding him to do something he was supposed to do. In the other letters, he doesn't greet individuals at all. That fact has so impressed some scholars that they believe these greetings weren't originally part of the letter to the Romans. 
that they were originally meant to be sent to Ephesus, where Paul knew lots and lots of people, and only accidentally, later on, got attached to the letter to the Romans. But I don't think so. He would not have sent personal greetings to the Ephesus church precisely because he knew so many people there. See, when you know everyone, you don't send greetings and compliments to some people because you'll leave out other people. But in a church where you only know a couple dozen people, you can greet them all. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the only other church to which Paul sent personal greetings was one that he had never been to. Besides that, Paul had a reason for greeting all these people. There had been some, we've talked about this, some frustrations in the Roman church between the old school Jewish Christians and the contemporary Gentile ones. Some frustrations that threatened division. Paul goes to great lengths to greet both Jews and Gentiles here and mentions how much he values them both because he wanted them to value each other. You remember what he told them earlier in this letter? Honor one another above yourselves. But in Greek, it's something like take the lead in honoring one another. In chapter 16, Paul's doing just that. He's taking the lead. He's showing them how to do what he ordered them to do back in chapter 12. So let's see what we can learn from this list of names as a whole, and then we'll pick out a few to zero in on. The first thing we notice from this list is the relatively large number of women included in it. Paul mentions nine women, which in such a patriarchal culture is significant. Four times in the greetings, he praises someone for being a hard worker, and guess what? Each time, it's a woman. Now you women are like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But guys, what does that say about the rest of us? Feminists have often bristled at St. Paul and been contemptuous of him, primarily because of two passages, one in 1 Corinthians, one in 1 Timothy. They have pictured him as the epitome of sexism and the source of 2,000 years of gender inequality. And I say they pictured him, but it would be truer to say they have framed him. This is a frame-up, if ever there was one. Had you asked the women mentioned in Romans chapter 16 if Paul was unjust toward women or treated them badly, they would have said that women never had a better friend and supporter than the Apostle Paul. His treatment of women, like that of his master before him, was countercultural. Paul treated women with respect, unlike many men in the culture from which he came and in the culture to which he wrote. He honored women and valued them as co-workers. One such woman was Phoebe, whom he mentions in verse 1. She was from the Sancria church, which was very near to where Paul lived for a couple of years. So he probably knew her quite well. He commends her. The Greek is, I stand with Phoebe, and calls her a servant. Greek is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon, of the church of Sancria. The fact that he entrusted this letter to Phoebe means that he had great confidence in her. The person who delivered letters was usually the one to read them, and he or she was expected to do so in a way that emphasized the things that the writer himself would emphasize. It was a great responsibility that he entrusted to her. In verse 2, Paul describes her as having been a great help to many people, including me, 
The word the NIV translates as a great help is just a, a noun, a single noun, which means benefactor or patron. Phoebe was apparently prosperous, probably a wealthy businesswoman, and she used her resources on many occasions to benefit the kingdom of God. So that, that brings me to something else that one sees in this list as a whole. It not only includes both men and women, which is surprising in Rome's male-dominated culture. Historians tell us there were more men living in Rome, significantly more men at this time than women. It not only includes men and women, it also includes wealthy people and poor ones, upper-class freedmen and slaves. See, Rome was not merely ruled by males. It was ruled by wealthy males. But Paul greets slaves and freedmen with as much enthusiasm and with as much honor as he greets the wealthy and the powerful. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, how does he know that some of these people were rich and some were poor? That some were from the upper class and some from the lowest class of slaves? And that's a good question. It is, after all, 2,000 years ago that this list of names was written. It would be like going through a 50-year-old phone book from a town you'd never been in and deciding that this name belonged to a rich person and that one belonged to a poor one. But actually, it's not like that. We have a built-in advantage when we, we come to the list in Romans that we wouldn't have in a phone book. In the ancient world, people gave certain kinds of names to certain kinds of people. If you were wealthy and in the upper class, you would give your kids certain names and not other ones. And anyone hearing their names would know they were from an upper class family. Slaves and former slaves would use, really they were forced to use, other names. And everyone hearing those names would know that they were from families of slaves or freedmen. That was the way it worked in that culture. So we can look at this passage and see who's who many, in many cases. So in this passage, we find names that wealthy upper-class families gave their children. And we find names that slaves or freedmen gave their children. Most of the names belong in that latter class. For example, Ampliatus, who's mentioned in verse 8, was either a slave or he was a family from a family that had been in slavery and bought its way out, freed, freedmen. Um, that's true of Urbanus, who comes in the next verse, verse 9. Aristobulus, however, in verse 10, belonged to a very different class. He may well have been the brother of King Herod, who was living in Rome at the time. And Narcissus was a great friend of the emperor Claudius. So, but not only are these men and women and rich and poor people, they're also Jews and Gentiles. Mary was probably a Jew. Could have been a Gentile, but Miriam was a Jewish name. Uh, uh, Andronicus and Junius, despite their Latin names, were certainly Jews, as was Herodian. But Jason, Sisypater, Tertius, many of the others in this list are Gentiles. So I want you to picture this church. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. It, it, Jews and Gentiles got along about as well in Rome in the first century as whites and blacks did in Selma, Alabama in the 1950s. But here they are in this church. There are rich people and there are poor people. There are powerful people and there are slaves, men and women. Whenever such racial and cultural and gender differences are present, there's always the possibility of division 
And St. Paul sees division as one of the worst possible things that could happen to the church. But see, in Rome, those differences, and Paul knew this, were not just a disadvantage. They offered an opportunity. They're not just a negative, but a positive because they demonstrated in a way that nothing else did the power of God to break down barriers and the power of love to build up a new kind of people in the world, the people of Jesus. There was nothing like the church in the first century, and there still isn't. Our nation right now is embroiled in controversies over race and gender. There's more distrust, more hostility between men and women, between whites and blacks and Latinos, between rich and poor than there has been in years. Where's the solution to be found? Where will people be heard? Where will re respect be granted to one and all? In the church of Jesus Christ. If our nation has hope, it's there. On Friday, I was at a conference, and I heard a man tell a story of a Muslim, a refugee, who has recently become a Christian. After finding himself in many places around the world, he ended up in Chicago. He met a Christian worker there and told him that he wanted to become a Christian. His reason? Because everywhere he'd been, the people who have helped him, the people who have shown him compassion and respect, have all been Christians. And every nation among every ethnic group he's encountered has been the people of Jesus who've treated him as a person of value. In the church, the differences between male and female, rich and poor, Gentile and Jew, need not be barriers to love and respect. They can be bridges, but only if we intend it to be so. All right, there are other treasures to mine in this list of names. If you want to do that, come to Go Deep on Wednesday night, Big B Coffee. We meet every Wednesday night. We talk about the passage the sermon's based on. I don't have time to go into all of the things in this list, but we'll talk more about it there. Uh, but we're going to run out of time now if I'm not careful. So let me point out one other name to you today, the name Rufus in verse 13, whose mother had been a mother to Paul. Rufus is a common enough name in the first century in Rome. But I think this Rufus may be one we've met elsewhere in Scripture. Before Jesus was crucified, so go back to the, the Gospels. Right before he was crucified, he was scourged. A Roman scourging was a grisly form of torture. But with Jesus, it was worse than usual. The whole barracks turned out, all these Roman soldiers to beat and humiliate Jesus. It was almost like a sport for them. After the torture, they made Jesus carry his own heavy cross through the city streets to the place where he's going to be crucified. But Jesus had lost so much blood that he nearly passed out along the way. So one of the Roman soldiers, so this, think of the city, the city's very compact. Jesus is walking through. There are lots of people there because it's Passover. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the city because of Passover. So one of the Roman soldiers who could do this seized a tourist who was in Jerusalem for Passover, and tradition, by the way, says he was black, seized a tourist and forced him to carry Jesus' cross. That unfortunate bystander was a guy named Simon. Both Matthew, whose gospel was written to Jewish believers in Palestine, and Mark, whose gospel was written for believers in Rome, same people who were reading this letter that Paul sent, relate that story, but Mark includes a detail that Matthew leaves out. He mentions that the poor, unfortunate Simon 
who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross had two sons, one named Alexander and the other named Rufus. How on earth would Mark know Simon's kids' names? There are tens of thousands of Jews from all over the Mediterranean in Jerusalem for Passover. How would he find out the names of those two kids? And why mention them in a history written for a Roman audience? I think he mentioned them because the people to whom he was sending his gospel knew one of them. I think the Rufus he mentioned is the same Rufus Paul greets in this chapter, a member of the church at Rome. It may even be that Mark learned this story from Rufus. Because Mark, who wrote to the Church of Rome, tradition says, he went to Rome. If that's the case, think what it implies. The young Rufus was put through an ordeal that was scary, bloody, and totally inappropriate for children. Kind of thing that could scar a person for life. And yet God used it to bring Rufus to the Savior. And because of it, Rufus' mother would come to love the apostle to the Gentiles like he was her own son. You know what that means? It means that there is no tragedy that can befall us, no injustice that can be done to us, no sorrow that can overwhelm us, that our God, the God and Father of Jesus our Lord, will not force to serve our good. As the Irish poet put it, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal, or say earth has no evil, that the God of heaven cannot conquer. All right, in verses 1 through 16, Paul talks about and greets his friends, and he had lots of them. Imagine if Paul had a Facebook page, one million followers or whatever, you know. But you know what? If he had had a Facebook page, he would not have hesitated to unfriend some people when that was necessary. That's what he's talking about in verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for, Greek is more like keep an eye on, those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. In other words, unfriend them. The biblical writers are unanimous on this subject. People who divide the church are sinners of the worst sort, and we must unfriend them. Now, that does not mean that we treat them badly or say unkind things to them or about them to others. Unfriending them does not mean unloving them, but it does mean that we won't hang around them We won't listen to them, disparage or demean others, and we won't allow them to drive a wedge between us and other believers. St. Paul says, keep away from them. To Titus, he says, warn such a person once and then have nothing to do with them. So in this passage, Paul In Romans chapter 16, Paul talks about his friends, he talks about unfriending people, and then he talks about people's best friend. From beginning to end, 
This letter is about Jesus Christ. Verse 25, it's a proclamation of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to introduce people to their best friend, the one who died for us. And I can't think of a better way to conclude this study of the book of Romans than by introducing you to this friend if you haven't met him. This is Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and whom God raised from the dead. Have you met him? Have you trusted him? Everything is moving toward a point. The whole universe and you, whether you realize it or not, are moving toward a point. The point of the universe, the point of it all. And the point of it all is a person, Jesus. As things narrow to that point, you will end up on one side or the other. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. The point of it all is Jesus. Your life will never be what it could be. Your life will never be what it should be apart from him. I urge you, if you've not done so, trust him. Give your life to serve him, and he will lead you to God. Let's bow our heads. And I'm going to invite you this morning. So lots of people are religious, right? They go to church all the time. Some people go to church once in a while, but they feel like, you know, I'm okay. I'm pretty religious. This is not about religion. This is about coming over to God's side and the only way that he's made possible for us to do that through confessing his son, Lord, and trusting him. If you haven't done that, your life will never be what it should be or could be until you do. I'm inviting you to do that this morning, right now. You can put it in your own words, but what what happens is you say to God, I'm coming to you. Not because I have any right to, but because you want me and because your son died for me. And I'm going to be yours by your grace. I choose that now. If you will tell him that, you can start a new life today. O oh God of Jesus, hear our prayers. In the Lord Christ's name, amen.